the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, September 10th. The semifinals of this 2020 U.S. Open finally set. It's going to be Serena Williams taking on Victoria Azarenka, Naomi Osaka taking on Jennifer Brady. That's going to be our Thursday action. Of course, we're going to recap how we got to this point. We're also going to talk about the men's quarterfinal action we saw on Wednesday. Talk about some of the other news, of course, going on in the tennis world as well. Joining me to do just that as he has throughout this 2020 U.S. Open. You, of course, know him as our Crack Rackets do everything. A former Denison men's tennis great, the only undefeated high school tennis coach in Missouri State history, James Foster McDonald. Jamie, how are you doing this morning? Uh, I, honestly, I'm not too bad. Uh, Well-rested. The night session did not go deep into the night like we saw with Karina Busta <laughs> and Shapovalov, so I'm feeling good, ready for this pod. No, absolutely. It was a very straightforward night session on Arthur Ashe Stadium. Uh, But nevertheless, still some really exciting tennis. We saw two contenders uh, make their move, really establish themselves as players to beat as we head into this championship weekend. And of course, again, what we're going to be doing on this podcast, recapping the four matches we saw on Wednesday, talking about the matches you can all expect to see in New York on Thursday. And then again, talking about some of the other results, other tennis news happening happening right now across the tennis world. We talked about the fact the French Open moving forward, plans getting ready to get that event started. We saw Ashley Barty already pull out of that event, but there are other warm-up events on the clay going on, so I do want to touch on those results a little bit at the end, but of course, the reason we are able to do this day in, day out here at the Mini Break Podcast, the reason we are able to provide you Crack Rackets fans with these daily updates is because of the support we get from our sponsors, and of course, we we say it all the time here at Crack Rackets. We really do mean it. When you are a tennis player, if you're looking good, if you're feeling good, you're going to be playing good. And that's where our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar come in. Midwest Sports, your one-stop shop for all of your tennis needs, whether it be rackets, strings, shoes, clothing. They've got it all on their website, MidwestSports.com. You go there. You're going to want to purchase some gear. And honestly, maybe you don't know exactly what you need. Don't worry about it. Their staff can help you out with everything. You use our promo code CR15, you'll get 15% off your order as well, as well as free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Midwest Sports wanting to ensure you have everything you need to make your return to the court a successful one. So go to MidwestSports.com, use that promo code CR15. Of course, that'll have you looking good to make you feel good. That's where the Aero Bar comes in, the only tennis-specific energy bar in the business, more potassium than a banana, delicious cinnamon, honey, oat, and chocolate chip flavors. Go to aerobar.com right now. Use our promo code CRACKED15. You can get 15% off your order. Let them know that we sent you there. And I'm telling you, folks, once you start eating them, you're just it's going to be a breakfast replacement. You're going to be like, this is the way I want to start my day. It gave me the boost I need. I'm not putting junk in my body. Aerobar.com. The promo code is CRACKED15. All right. With that being said, Jamie, let's get into these matches, and we're going to start with the men. Let's just get them out of the way at the top. We'll talk about the two men's quarterfinal matches, then we'll talk about what we saw on the women's side, get into those semifinal previews, and the match I want to start with, arguably, I mean, it's not arguably, it was clearly the more exciting of the two men's quarterfinals yesterday, the all-Russian battle we were treated to between Andre Rublev and Daniil Medvedev, Daniil Medvedev ultimately coming back when he was down in a first set tiebreaker to take the tiebreaker 8-6. From there, he takes the next two sets, 6-3, 7-6, to advance in straight sets over Andre Rublev. He's back into the U.S. Open semifinals for the second straight year. Jamie, your thoughts on Medvedev's performances today? Uh, performance today? Well, first of all, this is going to be the first of many, so get ready. Uh, me tooting my own horn here. I believe this is pretty much exactly <laughs> how I drew it up. I was a little skeptical of you saying that it wasn't going to be straight sets. Um, because, you know, maybe Rublev could have taken a set. And listen, if you were watching, you know that he should have taken that first. But regardless, Medvedev just simply too good in this one. Um, I mean, yeah, it was entertaining. A little unfortunate. I was actually, despite me saying that it could be a straight set win for Medvedev, I was hoping that Rublev would get that first set because he had control of the tiebreak. But neither of these guys really able to get in on the other one's serve, right? I mean, there was one break point between the two of them the entire match in that second set. Um, and Medvedev got it done. But listen, I mean, it, w- it was good 
to see, right? It's good to see a clash between friends, guys who obviously have played each other so many times and know each other's games. But Medvedev just showing why he's a step above right now. Yeah, no, I like that you're taking a victory lap considering Rublev was up, what, 6-3 in that first set tiebreaker? He absolutely should have won that first set. No, hey, take your victory lap. Hey, you know, it it doesn't count. Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. I think that's what it is. Um, But, yeah, look, in this match, what's so shocking, if I'd have told you yesterday that, hey, Rublev's going to make 51% of his first serves, Medvedev's going to make 59% of his first serves, and there's only going to be one break point between them, you'd have been like, huh good one. Uh, but that was the case in this match. Medvedev one for one on break points. Andre Rublev never even gets to break point. I mean, you talked for Daniil Medvedev across three sets in this match. He lost a total, Jamie, of 22 points on serve. That's, you know, that that's pretty good. I'm trying to think he served, I think, one more service game in this match than Rublev. I'm trying to figure out the numbers. 6, 12, 5. Uh, so he served 17 service games and he dropped 22 points. I mean, a point a service game are you kidding me that's just ridiculous from Daniil Medvedev and that's why he's such a scary opponent on a hard court because not only does he come at you with all this length and he's going to make that extra ball it's an unorthodox playing style the backhand can be so flat the forehand so whippy and then he'll throw in the slices he'll take balls early he'll play seven feet behind the baseline he'll throw all these different looks at you But the thing that makes him so scary is there are just days like this when the first serve's untouchable. He goes 51 of 57 on those first serve points. And I mean, you could tell at the end of this match, physically he was starting to struggle. And much like he did at the end of last year, there are times when he's struggling physically. He just goes, okay, I'm going to start smacking the serve now and I'm going to play big plus one tennis. And my six foot six frame allows me to do that. And I mean, no one would ever question, does Daniil Medvedev have a plan B, a plan C if things aren't going well? But it's hilarious hilarious to me that plan B for him is, okay, it's time for me to start smacking serves and playing big because for so many players, that's plan A if they're lucky. Yeah, absolutely. And and let's talk about this for a little bit because, you know, we've talked about what Medvedev can do, right? We know all of the things that he's got in his back pocket. Let's talk about the physical part for a second. Are you concerned with what you saw at the end of that match for, for Daniil moving through into the semis and, and potentially finals now? So it's a, it's a yes and no. You know, it's no in the sense of we saw him do this last year, right, where sure. he would struggle physically at the end of matches, and he ended up being just fine. I mean, he got to that five-set final with Nadal, and I mean, physically, the performance he put together in that match, that's an all-time performance from, you know, just, it, was a, it was a phenomenal match. You know, five years from now, if there's another five-and-a-half-month layoff in the season, I'm sure that will be our CR Classic, Jamie, yeah. is that Medvedev-Nadal U.S. Open final. But at the same time... This was only two and a half hours, and I know Rublev hits a big ball, and certainly through the first set and a half of this match, it was really physical. That third set was not physical tennis. That third set was pretty straightforward. A lot of big serves, a lot of plus one tennis. Medvedev didn't really get work his way that much into the Andre Rublev service games, and it was surprising to see him struggle, particularly because it wasn't the most brutal conditions. And yes, you have to keep in mind, you know, cramps aren't only a byproduct of physical struggles, right? They're a byproduct of you being meant, you know, being nervous, having these adrenaline rushes, these dips and flows, and your serotonin levels, all of the different things. See, I did, I did take by class, but um, it's just, I, I like, I don't know. I don't think I'm concerned because you look at Daniil Medvedev. Is he ever a guy you think, oh man, he's not in good shape right now? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I understand that. It's just weird to me because it, it, by all other signs, it looked like it was fine. As you mentioned, a pretty straightforward match, not grueling points because we've seen Medvedev go through, get through way more um, physically taxing matches and look totally fine. So, it was just a bit unsettling for me, but I, I just wanted your opinion because, you know, now you have to figure that the, the, the next match or matches for him are going to be a little bit more physical. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. That match against team, I mean, e- even if Medvedev's six feet behind the baseline, it's going to be side to side to side. He's going to have to take balls early if he wants to take time away from Dominic team. It's going to be a fantastic match, and we'll preview that on tomorrow's podcast. But let's quickly go through the Andre Rublev side of this equation because you look for Rublev again. The number that stands out to me, 51% on his first serves, and yet he only was broken once in this match. He only faced one break point in, in this match. 
match. If he converts that first set breaker, given where Medvedev was physically at the end of the third set, there's no set, you know, there's no telling whether or not he would have been able to pull off a comeback in this match. And I thought physically he looked good in this one. Now, there were times when he was getting flustered with himself, and I think, you know, Rublev's always going to be a little bit hot-headed, but certainly when you're playing one of your closest friends, you're going to get even more flustered. But you look at the ratios here, you know, Medvedev, 51 winners against 37 unforced errors. A lot of that was with the serve uh, for Rublev in this match, 23 winners against 17 unforced errors. We just talked about Medvedev physically. That just feels a little bit low for Andre Rublev. I feel like he should have, you know, when Andre Rublev's clicking, when he's working his serve and his forehand around the court, he's producing a lot of winners. And some of that is Medvedev just getting his racket on a ball. And so it's not a winner. It's a forced error. But, you know, what stands out to me, 8 of 10 in this match for Rublev. When Medvedev's going to be 12 feet behind the baseline, you just have to come to the net. You have to take the space away from him. That's the only available play. And I just think for Andre Rublev, it's still clear he's not the most comfortable volleyer. And if he's going to be the top five player that his talent certainly dictates he's capable of becoming, that's the missing piece, in my opinion. Yeah, and look, the stat sheet is a little bit odd. It's not exactly what you would have expected in terms of that winner to forced error ratio not that i mean look he, he comes out of it positive so good for him but the fact that that number is so much lower than the medvedev side um, is surprising you know i think you make a good point with coming to the net as well it's something that rublev has been very open about trying to work on i mean obviously there's still more work to go and and to me this this sort of match just highlights the chasm that's between these two at this moment, right? I mean, Medvedev just clearly a step above, and, and that doesn't mean that Rublev can't get there, right? It's it's a bit like, hey, Zverev was ahead for a while of all these other next-gen guys, and, and look, they caught up. Um, so it's not like that, you know, this gap between them is permanent. It's just right now Medvedev clearly a step ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, for Andre Rublev, he was, you know, what, 10-0 and 0 or 8-0 and 0 to start this season, worked his way to the fourth round of the uh, Australian Open. Now here he makes the quarterfinals, gets the win over Berrettini. Again, this is a step forward for Andre sure. Rublev. You're coming out of New York thinking, I did exactly what I came here to do. Second week of the slam, quarterfinals, put myself in a position to play a top four seed, and Daniil just got me today, but I had set points. So I agree. This is a great tournament for Andre Rublev. He's a guy who, I think, you know, again, we keep talking about this tier of players. Who are these young guys who can win grand slams? I think both what Rublev and Shapovalov showed is they've just got the firepower that they can't be written off yet, that they still need to be considered in that group. And so, again, a great performance from Rublev to get here, but even better from Daniil Medvedev. There's a reason he's a contender. There's a reason he's a top three seed. He showed that today. Another guy who showed off exactly why he is the number two seed in this this event. And look, he threw us off his scent, thrown a stinker in his first round against Filip Krajinovic at the Western and Southern Open. But you look for Dominic Team now at this point uh, in his run to the U.S. Open semifinals. He's dropped one set against Marin Cilic. Outside of that, he has looked so good and he continued to rock and roll in his quarterfinal match against Alex Dimenauer. Team, a 6-1-6-2-6-4 winner in the nightcap on Ash. Jamie, your thoughts on Team's performance in the quarters yeah I mean team just looks so solid right I mean he just he just moved Dimonor around and just completely imposed his well look and 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 I think it's funny uh, I want to reference your first point about team throwing a stinker in at Western Southern you know I, I think we just have to be done worrying about team and his weird first round losses because he just like mm-hmm. throws those in occasionally right you know he'll show up and just have a bad loss in the first right he's like oh did you just lose to Malik Jaziri in the first round of this, you know, ATP 500 event? That's weird, but it doesn't matter because he comes right back and bounces back and, and shows the tennis that he's capable of. And now, I mean, he's looking as good as anybody in this field, maybe even the best, depending on how you want to spin it. But in this match, there just simply wasn't much that Damon Hour could do. In this match, Alex Damon Hour made three. 57% of his first serves, which again isn't great, but he won 49% of his first serve points, 52% of his second serve points. Dominique Team won 50% of his receiving points in this match, and so uh, so frequently in the past, particularly on non-clay or non-clay surfaces, the play would be okay, just te- you know serve to that team backhand because he'll try and hit through it and he'll blast that ball six feet long, or he'll try and slice it and just his slice will sit a little bit short. Well, that's not the case anymore. Dominic Team was 
was just so efficient with everything he did on the court. And, you know, on his serve, that 14 of 36 on second serve points, that leaves a little bit to be desired. Of course, some of that credit goes to Alex Diemenauer uh, for stepping up on returns for throwing the kitchen sink at team. But I mean, 43 of 52 on first serve points for Dominic team. That's so good. I mean, in this match, 7 of 13 on break points, 43 winners against 31 unforced errors. He was just everything was on his racket. And, you know, Alex Diemenauer, and we can talk about him more in a second, but he tried to do everything. He tried taking balls early. He tried moving forward. He tried playing six feet back. He tried playing defense. He tried all of these different things just to try and break Dominic Team's rhythm, and he wasn't able to do it. And so early in the match, Team identified, hey, if I can hit with pace and depth to Diemenauer's forehand wing, I'm going to get a short ball to attack. I'm going to have opportunities to then start hitting inside out, inside out, inside in forehands. And when Dominic Team can do that, good luck beating him. And, you know, short of being Novak Djokovic right now, it's really hard to do that. And Dominic Team was just able to do it all match long. It was 100% played on his terms. Uh, again, he, you know, Diemenauer had a nice little run there. He goes down a break, I think it was 2 three or either two three or two one in that third set and again credit to Alex Diemenauer who never quits who's going to keep trying different things who's always thinking on court always competing and Diemenauer started a nice little run he broke back he held serve after being down love 40 and it seemed like okay are we about to get a match now and Dominic team was just like no I'm okay and he immediately broke back in the next game he held it out I believe at 15 to advance to the semifinals I was skeptical this entire time, I didn't put him in the same category. I said there were five guys who can win this event. You know, Djokovic, Tsitsipas, uh, obviously Medvedev, and then I had Raonic and Zverev. I did not have Dominic Team on that list. That was a mistake. And I had been on, you know, I've been driving the team bandwagon for so long, and I can't believe the moment I get out, he's looked this good. Yeah, I mean, he looks phenomenal. So uh, I'll stay on the, the Damon Hour side really quick because I, I think moving forward, the, the positives he can take from this, you mentioned it. He made that third set of contests. Now, ultimately, Team just outgunned him like he did in, in the rest of the match, and, and that is what it is, right? I mean, Dominic Team was on fire on a hard court, so, you know, take that with a it, it is what it is, right? But Damon Hour, you know, I think he, he knows for the next time what he needs to do. Um, but it's going to be really difficult because, simply put, he does not have the weapons that Dominic Team has, right? This gets back to a conversation you and I had earlier in the draw talking about Damon Hour. Like, okay, where does he go from here? Because he doesn't have the biggest weapons. And so that's something he's really going to have to work on because, yeah, it's great when you can get through that second tier of player. But when you get deep, into the Grand Slams and you play against guys who have just huge weapons, what are you going to do? Because, you know, matches like this show you that if they can run you around and, yeah, you can scramble and get two or three more balls than the next guy, that's not going to be enough to win you matches, and especially deep into Grand Slams. So I think there's a lot of things that Dimonauer has to go back with his coach, coaching staff on um, and try to understand about how he's going to play against these big guys when the moments come. But for right now, all positives in terms of the competitive drive because he did make that third set of contests. And there's a world where, you know, if team doesn't break back or has a, has a bad service game where Dimonauer takes that third set, and yeah, he probably still loses in four, but... That's not a bad way to go in, in uh, the quarters of the U.S. Open. No, and for Diminao, look, fourth round last year, quarterfinals this year, it's growth. And as you mentioned, his intangibles in this match were off the chart. The way he competed, the way he tried to make adjustments. We always say if a player's losing badly, 6-1, 6-2 through the first two sets, just lose differently, right? And that's what Diminauer tried to do. And, you know, you love hearing this after the match in press. He said, you know, on his loss, there's a big thing that you can kind of tell, and that's the six years difference, not just experience, but also physique, fitness. He's grown into his body. Now I've got to match that. He goes on to say, I'm not satisfied with where I am. This is where I want to be, but I'm not satisfied just coming here and getting to quarters anymore. I want to keep on pushing. I'll strive for bigger and better things. I just got to keep improving. And it's very easy to give the correct quote to the press, but when you hear it from Alex Dimenauer, there just, there seems to be an element of truth to it or just, you know, it's not fluff. This is what he means. Yes, he's happy with his growth, but he knows what the next step is for himself. He can identify his own weaknesses as well as you and I can, obviously, sitting here watching him. And so I I just think there's no way if he's healthy, he doesn't become the best possible version of himself. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you got to love, yes, maybe he is just saying the right things if you want to be cynical about it. But given what we've seen from him both on and off court, I don't know how you could think that at this point. This guy loves to be out there and he loves to compete. So really, really promising stuff from the young Australian. And, you know, I, I think given that that's his attitude, we will see him continue to make these deep runs and push further and further. So a great one for him. Potentially, you know, one of the uh, one of the guys who could be an Aussie and take home the Australian Open title someday. That would be a fun one. But regardless, that's down the road. And uh, here we are now. Dominic team just simply too good. No, I, I mean, I, there's the ear test, there, there's, which he passed is obviously the correct answer. The eye test, you see his effort on court, and there's the smell test, and this doesn't smell fishy. This smells exactly like what we've seen from him. Obviously, I agree with you. Continue to be excited about him. Uh, continue to be excited about Dominic Team, who finds himself in another slam semifinal, puts himself in another position to become that next player to break through the mold and win a grand slam on the men's side. Uh, of course, again, men's semifinals slated for Friday. So we will be previewing those matches. Karina Busta, Zverev, Team Medvedev on tomorrow's pod. Let's now talk about the women, Jamie, because obviously we were treated to two women's quarterfinals yesterday. Going to have our two semifinal matches today. Let's start with the only match that went the distance, the only match that saw both players win a set. Serena Williams uh, taking on Svetlana Perankova, and in this match, Jamie, I mean— Again, you're, I know I smell a victory lap coming, but Perankova taking the first set 6-4 in this, she had Serena just looking flustered. She had Serena looking out of sorts, and then, of course, as she has throughout these three weeks, really throughout the entire restart here in 2020, Serena Williams just clawing her way back into this match, finding a way, continuing to compete uh, at the highest level, just in terms of, again, her intangibles, and she takes this match in three sets, 4-6, 6-3, 6-2. Uh, your thoughts on this one, Jamie? Yeah, I mean, listen, I nailed this preview. I, there's, I'm not even going <laughs> to sugarcoat it or try to be humble. This one, you know, look, I was pretty on with the Medvedev-Rublev one, but I said that one with less conviction. I said, ah, there's some maybes here and there. This one went exactly how I drew it up. So, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna take this moment and cherish it. But, no, I mean, Serena, yeah, comes out of the gate sluggish, as I expected, loses the first set, as I expected, ends up winning it because Perankova's level ultimately drops. You saw the legs go out. Serena, being Serena, has the name that intimidates. Stayed on the court long enough for her game to find itself. You know, ultimately, she does put some solid tennis together and, and wins this thing 3-2 and two in the second and third sets. And for me, I mean... Look, I don't know how she hit 20 aces. I mean, I think that is, some of that is because of Perankova and just her legs were a little dead toward the end here. But I, I seriously, I don't know how she hits 20 aces. Her average first serve speed throughout this match was 106, and she hit 20 aces. On, I, I just don't know how that happens in a, in a three-set match. But regardless, Serena looking good, and she's got to be confident at this point. But, um, I mean, now, again, it's the later stages of the U.S. Open, and anytime you're talking about Serena, who knows, right? Because she can always compete and always win a match, no matter what's going on. Yeah, I mean, look, for Svetlana Perankova in this match, she did exactly what she wanted to do in that first set. She held serve solidly. She uh, made first serves. She just did—she played high-percentage tennis, and she just kept making that extra ball, making the match physical, saying, all right, let's see what Serena Williams has today. I mean, you look for her again in that first set, 60% of her first serves go in. She loses a total of five points on serve in that first set. Um, You know, I think uh, Serena didn't earn a break point chance in set number one. Prankova just played such smart, high percentage tennis, and then you could tell there was a point early in that second set, I think it was when Serena held for two all or one all or whatever it was where, or maybe Prankova was actually the one who held for two all, and she just kind of crouched over and started grabbing at her legs, and you know, Svetlana Prankova has played so much tennis. Uh, throughout this U.S. Open, a lot of three-set battles. You know, she got through Muguruza in straight sets, but that was a battle. She got through Vekic in straight sets. That first set was a battle. Obviously, you know, for her against Alize Cornet, physically that was just a slugfest. And in this one, you could tell it. You know, the heaviness of Serena's ball, the the her serve, just it was starting to get to Perankova's legs. And to Serena's credit, she immediately 
identified that. And rather than starting to play big, she started just playing to the outer third. She started going, you know, corner to corner to corner to corner to open up space for herself. And, you know, you take out the 20 aces from this match. Serena still had 25 winners against 24 unforced errors. I thought she was a pretty efficient 8 of 14 at the net. And, you know, for Perankova, a forehand slice that's coming after your heart, Jamie. I mean, the way she goes for that shot when she's on the defense, when she's, you know, stretched, it's it's delightful. It's a delightful contrast, but I think Serena just wore her down in this one. Yeah, and that's that's really what it is. That's what it came down to because I think in this one, this is one where you look at the stats, um, and it's great to have in front of you, but really this doesn't tell the story of this match. You know, there's sometimes you look at the stat sheet and you're like, yeah, that makes sense, and, and I feel like I can tell the story of how this match went. And really this is not one of those cases because this was, and, and I'll just say it here, we talked about it with George and Zverev, that one was a little bit of a different situation with players just being tight. This for a while was just some ugly tennis. Um, and, you know, you, you call it what it is. Serena ends up coming out of this, what, what I would call somewhat of a broken match at some points. Um, you know, for me though, again, I've said it many times before and I'll say it again, Serena knows that if she can just stay around in matches, she will get opportunities, and then she can take those chances and run with it. Um, and that's exactly what she did. So she's got to be feeling pretty good about getting to the semis, given her level of play and after dropping a first set. But again, this match pretty much went how um, I expected it to. And, and now moving forward, I, I feel pretty much the same about Serena as I did. Obviously a little bit less confident given the level of tennis, but hey, it's still Serena and, and deep into a U.S. Open. No, I mean, the biggest concern for Serena, we'll talk about this when we get to the match preview, it's that now she has to play a second day in a row. And, you know, it's so clear how having a day off has helped her, and justifiably. I mean, again, I I think for all of these players, you're looking for that extra day off. It absolutely will help you raise your level. But, yeah, Serena continued to do... Uh, well, the things she's always done well. When the first serve went in and it went in at a high percentage in this match, she usually won the point. And so, you know, for her, that's going to be so critical, of course, moving forward and you know, just quickly on this uh, note, you know, uh, the fact for Perankova now, 32 years old, obviously uh, she's been away from the game the past two and a half years. She had a child and it was such a, it's obviously so notable the fact that we have four mothers in Azarenka, Williams, Perankova, and Victoria uh, and Vera Svanareva, excuse me, uh, all still alive in the draw. And I talk about this on a Great Shot podcast you all can hear with Nina Pantic. Uh, it's just, it's evidence that tennis has finally caught up to the rest of the world. That, you know, the mo- in the modern tennis, in the modern game, you can have a life outside of the court. You can be a professional women's player, go have a family, have a child, come back to the sport and still compete at a high level. And that's obviously just such a good thing for the game. And it's so remarkable to see. And, you know, I, I, I as a man, it's kind of hypocritical for me to say it serves as an inspiration, but it's undeniable to say that uh, it's, you know, the th- what Svetana Parankova has done what Victoria Azarenka, Serena Williams, Vera Zvonareva, not just today in this U.S. Open, but just obviously throughout uh, their careers. It's just, it's incredible. You can throw in more examples as well. Obviously, Kim Kleister's coming back now too. It's it's just an incredible moment for Perankova. And of course, for her, she goes from unranked Jamie to number 155 in the world with this result. And again, she's almost 33 years old. I don't think any of us are expecting her to jump back into the top 10, but this was just such an exceptional run for her. And it was the freedom with which she played was so evident. She wasn't afraid to go big down the line. She wasn't afraid to play a forehand slice or just do something funky because she clearly is playing with nothing to lose. And that's just such a, I think we see that same mindset from Vika Azarenka. Now, I will add what was interesting is as as soon as she took that first set, you could see Parankova tighten up. And I just wonder as we head into the semifinal, is that going to be the case for every Serena Williams opponent? Yeah. And, and again, this is, gets back to what I was talking about. This is what happens when people play Serena. Her name and her reputation carries so much weight, so much beyond what she's actually doing in the now and in the moment. And realistically, I think if you're an opponent or an opponent's coach, you need to realize that and and address it head on because I think it happens every time someone gets in a match um, with Serena. But no, a great run for Paranka, but you got to imagine this taste of success has to just be amazing after coming back to the game um, after such, such a hiatus. So phenomenal for her. and, And we hope to see her, you know, making deep runs, but yeah, Serena, ultimately, just too good in this one, but she'll have to be really good in the next one if she wants to get through. 
Yeah, no, I mean, she has an absolute battle on her hands because she not only faces uh, a player who arguably uh, put together the most impressive quarterfinal at a Grand Slam I have ever seen, but maybe the one person in the draw as well who won't be intimidated by going up against Serena Williams, and that's uh, Victoria Azarenka, Vika yesterday, putting together arguably, and just quick last thing on Serena, I forgot to throw the stat, uh, Serena Williams now 44-42 and 42 when dropping first sets at slams, that's ridiculous. Um, I mean, you look at it, she's 12 and 10 at Wimbledon, 12 and 11 at uh, the French, 12 and 10 at the Australian Open, 8 11 now at the U.S. Open. That's just another stat when you're putting together the portfolio of why she's the greatest tennis player of all time. But she's going to have a battle on her hands in the semifinals in Victoria Azarenka. Victoria Azarenka, I'm not going to lie, I thought she was going to face a really tough test in Elise Mertens. I thought Elise Mertens was playing arguably as well as any opponent she had faced while in New York. I thought Mertens had a ton of momentum coming off of a win against Sophia Kennan. I thought for Vika, a three-set win in her quarterfinal, uh, round of 16, excuse me, against Mukova, uh, maybe that would start to drain her. Maybe now two and a half straight weeks of high-level tennis, what would we see in the quarterfinals? That was literally the exact opposite of what happened. Victoria Azarenka, again, arguably the most impressive performance you'll see from any player in a Grand Slam quarterfinal. Just demolishes Elise Mertens 616 love and I don't mean to you know it, it has nothing to do with Elise Mertens Elise Mertens did not play poorly in this match everything was just working Jamie for Vika in this one yeah so I mean again this is one where you and I talked about and, and before the match we were both like yeah it's going to be a tough battle and I took Azarenka and you took Mertens no I never expected it to be this much of a blowout I mean this was ridiculous 1-0 in a semifinal. yeah 1-0 oh. in a quarter um, to get to the semis is pretty nuts okay. so um, look at this point you say Mertens didn't do a lot wrong and and yes I mean this was mostly the story of Vika Azarenka I will say though Mertens really did not serve very well um, I mean I, I know part of it is just the fact that it wasn't that effective and Azarenka was just kind of returning unconsciously at some points but Mertens just needs to do a little bit more with her serve in this match to, to get some I don't know get some traction at the very least because Azarenka was just having a field day with every ball that came on her side of the court and listen an hour and 13 my sets last longer than that so this match was just <laughs> outrageous and I mean you got to be scared I mean, anybody going up against Azarenka has to be scared at this point because if she plays this level of tennis, nobody's touching her. Elise Mertens, 4 of 21 on second serve points. I mean, every return Azarenka hit, it was to a big target. It had great depth, and it just gave her control of the point. And I swear to God, Jamie, I don't think she missed a down-the-line shot in this match. She was just finding everything with ease. Uh, It was working, and you could tell. And again, you know, for Victoria Azarenka, former Grand Slam champion, obviously, it's the body language. You can just tell not only is she swinging so freely, but she's just having so much fun on court. She's so confident in her game right now, willing to take chances in the biggest moment, serving about as well as she has in her career. I think moving as well also, uh, you know, in this match, it's just a win across the board. Made 69% of her first serves. Check won 66% of those points. Check only had to play 16 points points on second serve, but went 8 of 16. That's solid. 8 of 10 at the net. She saved 3 of the 4 break points. She faced 21 winners against 11 unforced errors. I mean, again, I would have loved to see Elise Mertens maybe just throw up some moon balls or start playing slice, but she tried changing directions. She tried moving forward. It just... It didn't matter because Fika was that good today. Yeah, and, and I will say too, you know, look, it's not like every game was 40 love, right? Because you look at those serve stats and there yeah. were times where Mertens was, did, did have some opportunities in the Vika service game because it's not like Az- Azarenka just served her off the court, right? I mean, those percentages in the 60s and 50s, as you mentioned, that's not that's not completely lights out. But, you know, when it became the second half of the game, Azarenka was just too good, right? And so, look, at this point... I, I don't even know what to say because, look, Mertens, you, obviously you have to feel a little bit embarrassed coming out of this match. I mean, especially because, I mean, it, it's not really fair to say, oh, you're the seeded player because Azarenka, obviously such a great champion and, and coming back to the game. Um, but, yeah, this is a horrible way to go out, especially when, you know, you're being looked at and seen with the phenomenal level of tennis you've been playing. Um, it, it's just a tough out for Mertens here. But Azarenka, I mean, yeah, 1-0. What else can you say? No, I mean, again, it was for she didn't serve Elise Mertens off the court. She returned her yeah. off the court, oh, absolutely. and it was just, I mean, yeah, in this match, I mean, for uh, Victoria S. Ranka, twenty nine of forty four 
on receiving points. Yeah. 66%. I think that tells the story. And, you know, with all due respect, I don't even think we need to continue uh, too much further on this match because uh, you just look at it and it was all Victoria Azarenka from start to finish. She was that good. Uh, and so, you know, I think what we can do now is start to preview forward into the semifinals that we're going to see here on Friday. And let's just start with this matchup. Vika Serena number 20, or on Thursday, excuse me, Vika Serena number 23. Three, uh, Serena Williams obviously carries an eighteen to four head-to-head advantage in their career matchups, and yet coming into this one, Jamie, on the heels of that performance, on the heels of winning the Western and Southern Open, DraftKings, and I think all of us probably agree, Victoria Azarenka, the favorite heading into this match. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's it's weird to start doubting Serena Williams in the semis, you know, playing on Ash, right? But at this point, how do you? And I mean, how do you look at this matchup and see anything but Azarenka doing well? Because with that match, I mean, if she puts on any display near what she just did against Mertens, she wins this match, and it's pretty clear. Because Serena, again, this gets back to any of her matches, specifically the last one with Peronkova. It's not like her level was that phenomenal, right? She got through the match because she's a champion, and that's what she does. But that level of tennis is absolutely not going to cut it, no matter you know, no matter what your name is against Vika Azarenka. So. Azarenka has to be seen as the favorite right now, but I mean, listen, there's so much history between these players, and Serena gets better and better um, as tournaments go on. That's why she's won so many of these. So, you know, you got to expect this thing to be a battle, but yeah, if Azarenka plays anything like she did yesterday, this match is over before it started. Look, in their last two matchups, they're one and one. Vika beat her in the Indian Wells final 2016. Serena beat her Indian Wells last year, round of 64. But yeah, to your point, it always seems to be a close match when these two play. A lot of three-set battles, a lot of 6-4, 7-5, 7-6 sorts of sets. Uh, it's absolutely going to be a battle. And why I think Victoria Azarenka is not afraid is, yeah, she's 18-4, and four, or 4-18 and 18 against Serena, but she beat her in an Indian Wells final. She beat her in a Western and Southern final. She beat her in a Doha final, and she beat her in a Miami Masters final. She's beaten her in finals. Like, she is not afraid of playing Serena on the biggest stage. She just sometimes hasn't been able to come through in the end, but I think I, I just think I agree with you. I think Vika comes in in better form. I think, yeah, Serena played the morning match, but 1-0 and in hour 20 on court. Like, Vika's going to be just fine physically in this one. And I think for her, she has the advantage that it's played on back-to-back days, that Serena played a long physical match against Perankova, and she doesn't have that additional day off to rest. And look, again, Serena Williams, as exceptional of an athlete as you will ever see in any sport, period. I'm not denying that she's going to come out there and compete. I just think she's facing a buzzsaw in Victoria Azarenka, and everything Azarenka's been able to do well, absorb pace, move balls to the outer third, take balls early down the line. Uh, just It's everything you need to do when you're playing this version of Serena Williams, particularly return well, make a, you know, return the first serve to a big target, just stay alive in the point. Victoria Azarenka is going to be able to do that. And even if she doesn't play as well as she played against Mertens, if she can hit 90% of that level, just the sort of level we've seen from her throughout these three weeks in New York, I It's just a higher level of tennis than we've seen from Serena. And you never doubt Serena Williams, the great champion, but she's finally... I'm not going to say she's not going to have the mental edge because she's still Serena Williams, but she's finally facing someone who 1,000% will not be intimidated by the moment of beating Serena. And I just... I, I agree with you. It's going to be a battle, but I am leaning heavily towards Vika in this one. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's as simple as this for me. Azarenka is just playing better tennis, and it's not close. Yeah. It's just not close. Even if you, you don't even have to go to the stat sheets, you don't even have to look at the records. You can watch two minutes of these two players playing, um, and it's just very, very clear who's playing better tennis going into this. Now, obviously, that's not the full equation, but uh, look, it's a huge part of it, and yeah, we don't, we don't need to rehash this. And as much as I would like to see, you know, an All American battle in the finals to close this thing out. It it just doesn't look likely with with how Azarenka's been playing. 
Yeah, I mean, look, what is the recipe for Serena? Serve big, play plus one tennis, get a little bit of an off day from Vika, and just, I think Serena's got to take this match in straight sets. I think the longer this match goes, the more it favors Victoria Azarenka, just because of how good she looks physically right now. Um, That's the recipe, right, for Serena? Just, again, it's got to be a high first serve percentage, as always been, you know, she's probably going to have to take this one in straight. Yeah, and and again, I think that a lot of it's not going to matter. Um, if Azarenka is playing as well as she did, it, it, this won't matter at all. Serena can do everything she can. It, it simply won't matter unless she just serves her off the court, which, I mean, we haven't really been seeing from this tournament. Even though she ended up with 20 aces, again, that is mind-boggling to me. But um, if Serena has a really, really good service performance, then, yeah, this thing gets tighter. The business end of the sets gets a little trickier, a little more nervy for both players. But, again, to me, it's as clear-cut at this point. If Azarenka plays near what she did, this match is over. Yeah, so then you're taking Vika? Yeah, you have to at this point. Yeah, I'm probably leaning that way as well. Well, that's going to be one of our semifinals. Our other one, equally exciting match between Naomi Osaka and Jennifer Brady. Now, of course, for Jen Brady, you look at what she's done to get to this point of the tournament. Jennifer Brady, I mean, what, she hasn't dropped a set. I think she's won... Is it 22 of her past 24 now? I mean, she beats Putin Seva in straight sets, Kerber in straight sets, Garcia in straight sets, Bellis and Blinkova as well to get to this point. She's playing about as well in as anyone in the women's game, but of course she runs up against a two-time Grand Slam champion in Naomi Osaka, who's just, oh, I continue to say it, I'll repeat it again on today's podcast, when she plays her best tennis, she is the best player in the women's game right now. That first serve just separating her from all of her opponents. She's played big in the biggest moments. She's been able to activate the on-off switch, turn on her highest level whenever she needs it in these matches. She, much like Victoria Azarenka, has played a lot of these tennis these past two and a half weeks, but for some reason, she I mean, not for some reason, uh, she just continues to look better and better. I think this match is going to be an absolute battle, Jamie. Which way are you leaning in this one? What are you expecting to see? Yeah, I mean, at this point, look, I feel like you have to be leaning Osaka, um, but man, I mean, when, when when Jen Brady is on, I mean, look, we saw this. She has just dismantled opponents in this U.S. Open, and I mean, what an impressive run. Let's just start there. I mean, some of the things she's done, even in her match against Angelique Kerber, yes, you know, look, Kerber's not in her top form, but that's somebody who's won slams, right? That's somebody who knows how to compete, and Jennifer Brady just hit her off the court. Um, so at this point, I don't know how you don't expect this to be a, a clash because Osaka, you know, of course, she's been here. She's been at this big stage. She's taken these tournaments, so she knows what it takes to get this thing done. But, I mean, for me, what I'm really hoping for is just a great match because at this point, both of them look to be in great form. There's going to be a lot of hard-hitting ground strokes um, I think that's one thing that's not great in this matchup for Jennifer Brady um, is the fact that what she does really plays into the type of tennis that Osaka is comfortable with. I mean, the big hitting ground strokes, you know, the Osaka can do that all day, every day. So unless Jen Brady is just opening up the court and hitting clean winners on her, it's not going to hurt Osaka near as much as it has her past opponents. So at this point, it's going to be a very, very interesting one. And I think if Jen Brady wants a chance at winning this thing, she's going to have to be almost red hot from start to finish. Yeah, the serve is going to be so important for Jen Brady just to be able to establish control in these points. And look, career head-to-head 1-1 record. Uh, the last time they played was 2018 in Charleston. Naomi won that in straight sets. Brady beat her back at a 50K event in 2014 on hard courts in straight sets. But obviously, they're two completely different players since even their last matchup in 2018. And yeah, to your point, I think Osaka is going to have the pace to match Brady firepower for firepower. This is obviously the top toughest opponent Jennifer Brady will have faced to date, honestly, through her run in Lexington all the way till now, but... Jennifer Brady's going to be able to dish it right back at Osaka. Jennifer Brady, if she's finding the big serve plus one forehand, she's going to be able to do a little bit of dictating. Now, to your point, it's very important that she doesn't start pressing, that she doesn't start getting reckless with her aggression. But I do think a good thing for Jennifer Brady, you watch her, I don't think she's going to get overwhelmed by this moment at all. I think she's someone who's very laser focused, who's able to just, you know, if she makes a big forehand error, yeah, whatever, that happens. She'll still keep swinging away and she's 
going to have to keep swinging away because, of course, Naomi Osaka going to put so much pressure on you with her own serve, with her own forehand. I do wonder how Osaka is going to adjust to the, the spin of Jennifer Brady's ball, right? She hits such a heavy forehand, Osaka's forehand, a little bit bigger backswing, and so will that, you know, will she have trouble with the pace of Brady's ball? But I expect this to be a close matchup. I expect us to see a tiebreaker in this one. It would not shock me if both these players go through a set without dropping serve. And, you know, ultimately, I think it's going to be a close one. I I believe I'm leaning. I mean, I don't believe I am leaning Naomi Osaka. I've said it from the start of this tournament. I'm going to stick with that take. Uh, But I do think it's going to be very close. Jamie, give me your pick. Yeah, I think I, I, you know, you have to lean Osaka at this point. I mean, I think she's a decently heavy favorite in this one. But again, if Jen Brady is able to play her game and just keep Osaka on her heels the entire time, you know, this becomes a little bit different. My worry is that, you know, Jen Brady rips a huge ball, expects it to really hurt Osaka, and it comes back with interest. And, you know, Osaka's still standing right on the baseline. That That's sort of the concern for me because, I mean, you and I have talked about this, you know, off mic a lot is you know for me the way to beat Osaka is not with pace at her that's just absolutely not what you need to do and unfortunately that you know Brady's game might play into that so you know unless she's just hitting blistering ground strokes the serve is on fire and she's hitting her off the court you know I I don't see a way that Jen Brady's game lines up well against the the former champ yeah, no, I mean, it's going to be a really fun matchup. And of course, I think no matter what permutation we get of the women's singles final, we all uh, can look forward to that matchup because it's going to be a really, really fun one. Uh, but that's all of the action going on in New York. Now, I just quickly want to run through the fact that there are some other events going on in the world. For those of you who don't know, ATP uh, currently two challengers going on, but they've also got the 250 event in Kitzbühel. Uh, of course, all of these events on clay as we get ready for that portion of the season. Today's winners, Diego Schwartzman advanced in three, Yannick Hanifman advanced in three, Martyr upset Hubi Hercots in straights, Lazlo Jir knocked off Yannick Sinner, my guy Miamir Kasmenovic continues to rock and roll, and so some notable results there. Of course, we've got some exceptional players playing in the challenger level events as well, and so, you know, for those of you who are thinking, oh, the, you know, tonight's matches don't start until 7 p.m., what am I going to watch? Well, there's plenty of tennis going on across the globe, of course, at the W level. We've also got a couple of ITF events as well as the event going on in Istanbul. A really fun three-set win for Jeannie Bouchard today over Svetlana Kuznetsova. We've also seen players like Sasanovich continue to roll. Herzog continue to roll. So again, just know that we're monitoring those in the back of our minds as we try and prepare our takes because only two weeks really until the French Open starts. Things are going to go fast now, folks. So, you know, we are staying engaged, staying aware of everything that's going on. I'm sure we will have some time to watch those results more closely, talk about what we learned from these events a little bit later on, but just wanted to mention those to you all. Also, just a couple of other quick things for you, Jamie, and I want to hear your comments on this. A, we saw a little bit of drama, right? Yastrzemska loses that match to Osaka at the Western Southern Open. Her coach, Sasha Bajin, said, what a performance from Osaka. She was just the better player today. Yastrzemska says, I thought I was always the best player in your eyes, whatever, whatever. Uh, We learned today. Diana Yastrzemska announcing a split from coach Sasha Bajin after nine months of collaborating. Her collaboration has been terminated as of last week. She's going to announce a new coach in December. Uh, Sasha, or in November, excuse me, Sasha came out uh, and gave his statement as well, saying, look, it was great for me to get to work with her, all of these different things, but sadly, it just wasn't working out. Your thoughts on that split, Jamie? Does it shock you? At this point, no. I mean, look, that <laughs> you don't want to read too much into it. You don't know what I won't pretend that we know everything that's going on behind closed doors there. But, I mean, yeah, that comment on social was really weird to me. Um, it seemed kind of petty and immature. And I was like, okay, come on, Yastrzemska, what are we doing? He just said that you got outplayed. And let's be honest, you did. Um, so that one was a little odd to me. But, yeah, not surprising that there's clearly a little bit of tension there if she's going out and saying that um, in a response on social media. So um, unfortunate because, obviously, Yastrzemska has been somebody whose game is, continues to rise. And so hopefully she finds a coach that she's comfortable with and, and that will make her a great champion. But a little surprising at this point. But, you know, given that tension that we saw, you know, not completely shocking, I'd say. No, I just love the drama. I'm all about it. Give me as much pettiness as possible, please. We all need that in our life right now. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Hey, the more tennis drama, the better. That's why Curios is great for the game. 
Yes. Amen. All right. Well, then, last piece of news for you all, some very positive news. The AP- ATP announced the addition of four new events to the 2020 provisional schedule. They introduced two new back-to-back ATP 250 events in Cologne, uh, in Germany. That's going to be indoor hard, as well as a new ATP event in Sardinia in Italy. That's going to be clay and Nur Sultan, which is in Kazakhstan, on the indoor hard courts. You look at where those events are going to fall. Cologne, now October 19th. Uh, Sardinia, uh, now October 12th, I believe. Oh, as is the other Colonia is also October 12th. Uh, we see Nur Sultan now October 26th. So again, more ATP events, uh, 250 and 500 level for these players to play. I don't know whether to feel apprehensive about it. I don't know whether to feel excited about it, Jamie, but certainly now we see, again, movement is happening. Yeah, look, there's some excitement, but also some guilt that comes along with it for me. Um, because, yes, it's great to see tennis coming back, but it's also a little bit, I, I feel a little bit uneasy about it because clearly, you know, everything with COVID has not been solved. You know, we, we still see issues popping up here and there and cases still occurring, um, large events bringing more cases. So it, it, it does make me feel weird. Um, I'm not exactly comfortable with it, but yeah, as just a selfish spectator from afar, I guess it's nice to be able to look and have tennis. Yeah, no, I mean, it's unbelievable. And so, um, I I mean, again, I I think you nailed it. It's it's tough because we don't know what the health and safety regulations are going to be. There are fans right now in Kitzbühel, and I'm not going to speak for the COVID situation in Austria, but certainly I'm apprehensive about it because I'm apprehensive. You know, I'm still not eating at restaurants, and this is just a personal thing. And so to see these players, you know, how comfortable are they going to be competing in all of these places? How feasible is it for them logistically to go from city to city without having to do all this rapid testing, without having to clear all these various protocols? Uh, but it's, I imagine the ATP would not have announced these events had they not given it an extraordinary amount of thought as to how they can help facilitate those things. So yeah, I think certainly it's a positive for all of us in the tennis world and you know the opportunity to see more events. That's great at the ATP level. Hopefully we can get it sorted out at the challengers and futures level as well. But uh, again, that's the update for Wednesday. A lot of things going on. There are always moving parts in the professional tennis world. Play going on at the Grand Slams, but also the, again, the international and 250 level the challenger 100k and itf levels as well Uh, and of course again if you need to stay up to date on all things going on in the tennis world be sure to check out our website crackedrackets.com like rate subscribe review to this podcast the great shot podcast cracked interviews and inside out podcast go check out our youtube channel as well where you can see things such as our picks for ace of the day you can see you know the video draw you know the draw previews or the week two previews that jamie and i did we'll of course have a video recapping these U.S. Opens as soon as they are completed. But you just want to subscribe to that because you don't want to miss the incredible work of our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, who, as always, has a f*** of an editing job to do and continues just day in, day out to rock and roll. Uh, Because, of course, and he's going to have to with the French Open only two weeks away. The content never stops. You know, the stories never quit moving in the tennis world. And so, of course, we will continue to cover them here. We are so grateful to our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar for their support in doing so be sure to go to midwestsports.com use that promo code cr15 go to aerobar.com use that promo code cracked 15 jamie any final thoughts before we wrap this bad boy up excited to see the finals no matter where they end up no matter who gets there it's, it's going to be a lot of fun at the u.s open so glad that we got it even though no spectators happening really excited to see what happened to the french i mean i know you know we don't need to get back into it you mentioned the spectator thing being a little iffy there but regardless again as a selfish spectator, really excited to have big time tennis back. No, absolutely. It is three weeks later, but we have arrived at championship weekend, and that's something we were not certain we were going to be able to say over the course of these past six months. Nevertheless, we will keep rocking and rolling here on this mini break podcast throughout the end of this U.S. Open and even beyond that as well. And again, one more reminder, if you have missed any of our content, be sure to go to our website, crackedrackets.com. But with that being said, for my wonderful co-host, James Fulster McDonald, our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westhoff, our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Jamie, what do we tell the people? That's a break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.